episode 51 of the comic book time machine the six million dollar man and the bionic woman issues two from charlton comics Hello and welcome to the Comic Book Time Machine. I am Ben, Ben Avery, a comic book fan, comic book writer, comic book reader, comic book collector, and I am here to talk to you about some comic books. Uh, I know, you're surprised, but don't be too surprised because that's what this show is about. It's in the title. Um, You know, I'm here, though, specifically today to talk about some comics that are there were a pleasant surprise considering some things that have been going on with me and my kids um so here's here's the setup my children and i have started a wednesday night routine wednesday night is a long work day for me i come home around eight or not around eight o'clock i go to work around eight o'clock i come home around nine nine thirty and when i do that uh, there, there's a local station that started showing some of those classic TV shows. You know, it's one of those networks that has the classic shows, Murder, She Wrote, Magnum P.I., Knight Rider, those kind of things. Well, on Wednesday night, they started showing a three-hour block of Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman. Now, we didn't watch all three hours. Basically, what we would watch is whatever came on at, at 9, and, and maybe we'd stick around for the, the episode that came on at 10 as well. After a while of this, uh, they started actually doing, showing more episodes with reruns. So, like, you're seeing episodes that they just showed two, three weeks ago. And so I just went ahead and plunged in, bought the DVDs. And so now we come home on Wednesday nights. We still watch Six Million Dollar Man or Bionic Woman. But we get to start it right away because it's on DVD. We don't have to wait for the network's schedule. And... When we do watch it, then uh, we can also pick and choose what episodes we want to watch, which means we don't have to watch the terrible episode that might be on the network. We can choose some of the best ones. And there's been some episodes that we've really enjoyed. The, the William Shatner episode didn't have a lot of action, but it had enough cheesiness that we enjoyed that one. There was an episode that took place in Florida that had this fake crocodile that it was just not great. <laughs> And we had a lot of laughs with that episode, too. But we've also enjoyed watching, like, the pilot movie and, and some things like that. And it's been fun watching this with my kids, letting them see some things from my childhood that I enjoyed. And uh, my daughter, my wife, actually today, not knowing I was recording about this, but um, perfect timing. Today, my wife sent me a text. There was a picture that my oldest daughter had drawn. And it was a picture of an astronaut and a tennis player, and there were hearts between them. And under the astronaut, it's S-A, and under the the tennis player, it's J-S, and that's for Steve Austin, the $6 million man, and Jamie Summers, who was a professional tennis player. And her accident didn't have anything to do with her profession like Steve Austin's did. He was a test pilot that crashed, and they had to replace his 
legs and his right arm and his right eye. And I think it was his right eye, maybe his left eye. But uh, then there was, for her, they were on a date going skydiving and her chute malfunctioned. And so she fell, hit the ground. She had to have her legs replaced, her right arm and her ear to get in. And she has super hearing in her ear. He has telescopic vision in his eye. And they both have super strength in their legs, allowing them to run, and in their arm, allowing them to lift things that are heavy. But they still have that one human arm. And there's, some, there's enough weaknesses with that that they can do some good storytelling. The storytelling engine that they use is very similar to a lot of the do-gooder uh, type of shows or the, the police shows that, of the time and that kind of thing where they're going from place to place. Sometimes they're on a mission. Sometimes they're visiting someone from their past and something happens. And so, like I said, we've been really enjoying watching these shows. My kids have been enjoying it. I've been enjoying it because it's a trip down memory lane for me, though, because I remember watching these shows, you know, when they were on TV. Now, I saw them mostly in reruns, uh, but I remember watching the shows. I had the toys. Uh, it just, I, I played on the playground. We, we played on the playground and we would make the noise, you know, the and everyone does it a little bit differently because no one can quite get the noise right. I've never heard anyone do the noise with their mouth correctly so it sounds like the, the thing that you're hearing because it's just so mechanical. Uh, my kids do and that just sounds completely wrong to me but that's because for you know 35 years I've been just going what's funny though is that there's a show on PBS that my kids watch in the afternoons every once in a while it's some sort of math thing and it's basically like an X-Files Twin Peaksy Eureka type of show with these investigators who investigate weird things that happen to have the solutions based in math. And they've a couple times referenced the bionic sound in there and my kids catch it. So I have a, I've, I've kind of wrecked my kids when it comes to media and, and pop culture. There's, they still get some new stuff, but yeah. Well, anyway, uh, I also remember geeking out with my cousin Greg and acting out the episodes and acting out how, you know, Steve Austin defeated Bigfoot. And uh, I remember vividly seeing a couple episodes that really almost frightened me. Uh, and that's really the only memories I have of watching the show are the ones with the strong kind of frightened reaction from me. But I was a big fan as a kid. I had Steve Austin. I had Oscar Goldman. I had Maskatron, uh, which was the toy that was based on one of the uh, villains from the show. It's not a perfect representation of the villain. It's actually a much better toy than it would have been if they had done what was actually in the episode. Uh, but you could remove his face and put Oscar's face on, Oscar Goldman being uh, the the OSI representative who's basically Jamie and Steve's handler. He's the one who gives them missions. He's he's kind of in charge of, of the things that are going on there. Uh, you could take uh, put uh, Steve Austin's face on the robot guy and you could remove his arms and he had different he had one claw arm that was really cool and if you press little buttons on his 
his uh, bicep. It would actually launch his arm off as if he was losing bits of him as in a fight. Uh, same thing with his legs. And I, if I remember correctly, there's a certain spot you can make Steve punch and his head would just go popping right off. And I loved these toys. I loved these toys. They were large. They were big. So they were, um, you know, Barbie size. And I also had a Darth Vader who was who was that size and a cowboy. And so I didn't have a whole lot of options when I was going to play with the larger toys because I didn't have any Barbies. Uh, my, my sister did, but I, I didn't. So, uh, but anyway, I, I love those toys. I, they didn't last. You know, the, they broke. The little pieces that would hold on the leg broke. And eventually they all got thrown away. But I... I have very, very, very fond memories of those toys. I have very fond memories of my friends and I playing on the playground, acting out Six Million Dollar Man. And I even have actually fond memories of the reunion movies that they made. There were three of them. I only saw two. I'm pretty sure we recorded it on VHS, and so I was able to watch them over and over again because I have pretty vivid memories of those as well. That was uh, in the 90s when I was in high school and then in college. I enjoyed those. They were they were nice. They were more modern, but they were kind of returning to these things from my childhood. The problem is right now is I really want to find them, but I can't find them legally. I just can't get my hands on them legally or in the region for my DVD player because they've they've got uh, I think region one, which would be UK. I think whatever is not our region here in the states, I don't have it available to me. Uh, because it was only released in the box set. Well, when I bought the DVDs, I bought them season by season, and so I have to do a double dip if I'm going to get those, and that's a pretty huge double dip. Not going to do it. Hopefully, eventually, sometime, it will become available to me legally. We'll find out. Anyway, I was at uh, the the toy store that's just down the street from me. It's called uh, Tom's Vintage Toys, and it's actually two blocks away from our house. This is not a good thing. I... When I go there, I always find something. Well, this time I found some comics. Uh, I found an issue of The Six Million Dollar Man, issue number two of The Six Million Dollar Man, and an issue of The Bionic Woman, also issue number two, although because The Six Million Dollar Man started earlier than The Bionic Woman, uh, these issue number twos came out at different times. And I'm going to talk about these comics in just a moment, but first I'm going to play a podcast promo for a topic that is quite related. In fact, it's exactly related to what we're talking about here. It's for a podcast that's actually about, well, you probably have figured it out by now. I'm going to go ahead and play it, though, you know, keep you in suspense until they actually start the promo. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. And I want to just say right now, I only play promos for podcasts that I listen to and that I enjoy. And this is one of those that when I started watching the show again with my kids way back when, I saw I thought I'm going to look for a podcast about this as well. And they are going through it episode by episode by episode. They've been on a little bit of a hiatus. 
since actually since like last August or something like that. So it's been at this point maybe half of a year of hiatus, which may not count as a hiatus anymore, but they have a deep catalog and there is a number of episodes, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of episodes. And they're very, very strong episodes. I, I like they have guests who come on who are writers and authors, but who uh, who also have been involved in like the creation of the DVDs and the extra material on the DVDs and that sort of thing. It's pretty cool. And then along with that, it's insightful and they have you know trivia and that kind of thing. It's a good podcast. If you're interested in Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman definitely check out that podcast so moving on to the the comic books here uh going to mike's amazing world of comics you find that bionic woman number two that i hold in my hand right now is cover dated february 1978 but if you want to go back in time and get this you can set your time coordinates for november of 1977 Similarly, with uh, The Six Million Dollar Man, it's cover dated August of 1976, but you want to set your coordinates for May of 1976. Now, there were only nine issues of The Six Million Dollar Man. There were only five issues of The Bionic Woman. There's a black and white magazine, too. I don't have one of those. I didn't see that there. I've seen it before, and I've actually taken a look at it. I didn't buy it because it was very expensive. Apparently, those are pretty rare as far as the black and white magazines go, but... I have, I don't have that, so I, I'm not even going to really talk much about that other than to say that because it was a black and white magazine, similar to Marvel's black and white magazines, it had no Comics Code Authority stamp or anything like that, so it had much grittier stories. With The Six Million Dollar Man, uh, there's something you'll notice here, and that's the release schedule. Uh, issue number one was released March 76. Issue number two was May 76, March, April, May, so two months apart. Uh, issue three, July 76, again, two months apart. And then finally, issue number four was September of 76. Issue number five, July of 77. <laughs> so quite a long uh, period of time in between number four and number five. Between uh, number five and number six, we go from July to November. And then from six to seven, six was in November of 77. Issue seven was December of 77 and then issue number eight was february of 78 and issue number nine was march of 78 so there's some of these you know they come out one month after the other i imagine for number uh, six and seven it almost feels like they wanted to get number seven out in time just so they could have two on the on the racks uh, at the christmas you know shopping time or whatever the one thing though uh, between issue four and issue five, that's September of 76 and July of 77, you'll recognize this then when I say the Bionic Woman number one came out in July of 77. So now things are starting to make sense about why they came out in July uh, of 77. Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, they got the license to Bionic Woman, so why not put them both out at the same time? So issue number two of Bionic Woman, November 77, just like issue six of Six Million Dollar Man. Issue number three, February or no, sorry, issue number three was December of 77, same as issue number seven of Six Million Dollar Man. Issue number four, February, same as issue number eight of Six Million Dollar Man. And finally, issue number five of Bionic Woman, March 78, same as the ninth issue of Six Million Dollar Man. The other interesting thing that, that this, well, it's interesting to me anyway, is that Six Million Dollar Man, the TV show, 
ran from 1973 until 1978. And actually, the last episode of the Bionic Man TV show aired in March of 1978, the same time that the final comic book of both series would have been on the stands. It went for five seasons. Uh, the, the Bionic Woman went for three seasons, from 75 to 78. And so those two shows were both canceled. Now, there's some really interesting trivia about those two shows. For example, um, they had crossovers and that sort of thing, but they were all both on ABC when they did that for the, their two seasons. The third season of Bionic Woman it had been canceled at ABC, and NBC picked it up for a third season, which meant Steve Austin couldn't guest star on it anymore. However... Because the guy who played Dr. Rudy Wells and the guy who played Oscar Goldman were regular cast members on both shows, they played the same character the same year, the same season, so to speak, of The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman on two different networks, which I I think that might be the only time that's ever happened. Uh, I'm not sure exactly, and don't quote me on that. But it certainly seems like an odd situation to me to have them playing the same character on two different shows on two different networks. There's other things that were happening that, that are other you know interesting trivia things like uh, Lee Majors was married to Farrah Fawcett. They were both lead actors on hit television shows. Uh, at the same time, although that's actually part of why their marriage didn't last is because they were both just working really hard. But the, the TV show cancellation is not why the comic book was canceled. That's just a coincidence. The reason the comic books were canceled was because Charlton wasn't doing well. Uh, Charlton is a kind of interesting company to me. I like the trade cover dress that they have on their uh, their comics. It's it's different from Marvel. It's different from DC. But at the same time, you can tell it's from that same era You know, in the 70s. You can tell there's there's a similar uh, vibe to all comics that come out in the 70s. And I haven't read too many Charlton comics uh, at all, honestly. There's one that really interests me, and that's I think it's called Doomsday Plus One. I really want to read that. It's, I've heard good things about it, and I've heard that it's a, it's a pretty fantastic sci-fi comic. These two comics here might be... Well, no, they're not the first Charlton comics I've ever owned. I, I think I had some sci-fi anthology books or something like that. But... They're the first that I've actually been interested in because of what it was and not because it just happened to be in, you know, like a lot that I want on eBay or something like that. Just an extra book that w just I got it, but it wasn't what I was actually wanting to get when I got the lot. It was something else. It was the reason I bought that lot on eBay. But another interesting coincidence, uh, as I'm recording the episode that, about this, these two comics on this particular day, the same day that my daughter draws the picture, she doesn't listen to this podcast, she has no idea what's going on with this podcast, uh, but this week I also got in the mail my print edition of the latest issue of Back Issue Magazine, number 79. And in that issue, it's the whole thing is about the Charlton company. Now it's about their original superheroes that came out uh, when they were, you know, first started publishing and, and some of the things that, like, that go along with that. Six million dollar man and bionic woman get mentioned in a paragraph talking about licensed product that they were producing. But what I, what I found super interesting though, is how the company got started. I'm going to read to you from back issue magazine right now. 
says, uh, actually, comic books weren't Charlton's primary product, at least not in the beginning. In the early 1930s, Italian immigrant brick mason John San Sintangli- Sintag- Sintangelo, in an effort to impress his music-loving girlfriend, started publishing inexpensively produced magazines that printed the lyrics of popular songs. Little did he realize that he was breaking the law and he was convicted of copyright infringement and sentenced to one year in prison. There, he met a disbarred lawyer met, named Edward Levy, and after their release, Santel, uh, they started Charlton Publishing, legally obtaining the rights to song lyrics and publishing several successful music magazines. Uh, so it didn't start with comics, but it started in prison. <laughs> I find that really, really interesting. Again, maybe you don't, but I, I do. Now, these days, they're most famous, I think, as far as their historical uh, presence for creating ripoff characters that you know are, are just kind of related to or or similar to whatever was popular at the time, spies, you know, with James Bond and, and Secret Agent Man, and um, or different superheroes and, and that kind of thing, kind of a bandwagon publisher. But they are known for having some pretty strong artists as well. And the other thing that they're famous for as far as modern readers are concerned is that these uh their characters were the characters that Alan Moore in- originally intended to- for use for Watchmen because DC Comics had bought the Charlton uh catalog of-, of characters and I'm not sure how deep what they purchased went uh because I'm not sure I- I'm not sure the timeline there but uh, I haven't read that part in the magazine actually in the back issue but he had to switch because DC had other plans for the characters, and that's where why we have um, Doctor Manhattan instead of Captain Adam. <clears throat> now, 1978 was a tough year for Charlton, and and uh, according to uh, an article in uh, Comic Book Artist issue number nine. Uh, quote, management ordered the comics line in 1978 to stop accepting new material. Uh, other titles had already been canceled b- before this, but this was kind of the, the death knell for original material. And they started printing reprints and they, they lasted uh, until 1985 uh, when they, they finally just closed their doors altogether. And an interesting side note is that recently uh, there's been a modern revival of some of the Charlton comics that some of the actually the original creators are are even involved in and it's it's more than a, a you know a fan fiction kind of revival it, it's because they're getting in some of this original talent uh i haven't had a chance to look at it or or see what they're actually doing but it sounds like a really uh interesting really exciting project that's going on there so anyway on to the comics themselves uh bionic woman features two comic stories and a backup text story and you know the backup text story is something that i've actually done in some of my own comics i really like using that storytelling conceit and i did it in uh armor quest and i did it in the oz wonderland chronicles now i didn't do it because of these comics in particular i just did it because i've known of comics that have done that and uh for oz wonderland chronicles we were just looking for some different storytelling techniques to present side stories that would be uh, cheaper to produce and and easier to produce than a full-on comic with 
sequential narration in the art. For Armor Quest, same thing. We were looking for a cheap and easy and quick way to do a second story. And three pages of text with only three illustrations seemed like the, the way to go. And Charlton, I think, would agree that I think that's the reason why they, they went and did that. I, I'm not sure how often they do it in the series themselves, but in uh, both Bionic Woman and Six Million Dollar Man, they did this and, and they you know have a big picture and and then it's just text. And then the next page would be a couple pictures. But again, easier to produce and not as expensive to pay the artist to do sequential comic book art now in the bionic woman there's no sign of any credits in the whole book after reading it i kind of wonder if that was by contract that the artist and writer actually asked for that but i'm i'm not going to go that far i and i don't want to play my hand too much but i i fear i may have the cover features uh jamie summer is about to get chomped by a shark uh jaws was in 1975 so, you know, they could be playing off of that, but I almost wonder if they were playing off of The Deep, the which I talked about in an earlier Marvel-licensed comic episode. Um, now, The Deep was 1977, and looking at this cover, this feels more like that. You've got a woman in a diving suit fighting a shark with a knife, and a man who has a harpoon gun who's shooting it at the shark? Or at Jamie? Who knows? It's a very intense kind of cover. I like the artwork here. And if I were judging this book by the cover, this is going to be the kind of comic I'm going to like. Now, I've been disappointed when it comes to sharks before with The Human Fly. Again, going back to some of the, the Marvel licensed books, I've been disappointed before. I've been let down before. I've gotten the promise of a shark fight before. So the question is, am I going to be disappointed again? Uh, based on the cover, though, this is going to be something I like. But you open it up, and no, we're not uh, in the water. We're actually in a classroom. The first story of the book is called The Freedom Way. And it's set up on the first page by saying, um, pretty long text box, when Oscar Goldman asked Jamie Summers to give up her small town teaching job in California and travel to Southeast Asia to tutor the children of President Amarlan, the Bionic Woman wanted to refuse, but she owed the director of OSI her life, three of her limbs, and her bionic ear. So, a few weeks later, Jamie Summers was teaching the three R's in a strange setting, wearing exotic clothes, adapting herself to the customs of the land. And it, she's. This is definitely an Asian setting. Uh, the, the characters around her are drawn as Asian caricatures. Uh, we'll talk about that more after the plot. Um, but we get the setup. She's teaching them about democracy. She actually has written democracy on the chalkboard. Uh, the leader of this country was just recently elected. He was someone who was was brought in because. He was next in line for the throne, but they have now moved to a democracy, and he was voted in. Uh, one of the students confronts her about her ideas of democracy because uh, he's been fed ideas from a colonel in his father's army that one day he'll be in power and that democracy is a sham and a farce and all that kind of thing. 
Jamie makes a fool out of the the colonel, though. He's in the classroom, and he's, you know, blah, blah, blah. My, the president is the grandson of the last emperor, blah, blah, blah. Democracy is stupid, blah, blah, blah. So she grabs him by the arm, squeezes with a little bit of bionic strength, and escorts him out of the classroom. Oscar Goldman gets word of this, though, and contacts her over the phone. Okay. Uh, and wants to bring her home because she's made a fool out of him and there's some bad situations going on in that country. But she begs him not to let her go home because she's realizing the children are kind of caught in the middle of this power play between the old and the new, between the military fanatics and the democratically elected president. After she hangs up, an assassin shoots at her and barely misses was it on purpose that he missed or was he just a bad shot? Who knows? Later, she's invited to a dinner held by the president. And while she is there, she uh, stops a, an assassination attempt on his life when they she overhears people talking about poisoning his wine. And she is able to stop him from drinking. So that night, then, she talks to Oscar, and Oscar said, bad things are afoot. You are allowed to use your bionic powers. And so she puts on a skin-tight, dark outfit and goes out to realize that the military is staging a coup. And she fights them off and does pretty good until someone draws a gun on her, and then she's taken prisoner, and the president's taking prisoner, and then they're going to take one of the president's young children as leverage. But Jamie then, uh, it's kind of funny, uh, kicks the colonel who is doing the coup in the back of his knee. Uh, we used to do that when we <laughs> were in line at the cafeteria in, in college. We'd you know, knock out the back of the person's knee in front of us. And only if it was our friend. Because you only want to hurt your friends. But yeah... We stopped doing that after a friend of mine did that to a girl who he it was a weird thing. It was Italian night and they were playing all these Italian operas and we had this nice meal with candlelight and and uh, pasta and all that kind of thing or pasta, however you want to say it. He did that to her and it dislocated her knee and she fell to the ground. She just crumpled to the ground and she just lay there screaming and agony and the Italian opera is playing and I'm just standing there in line and thinking when how did this happen our college cafeteria just became a mob movie it was crazy so we stopped doing that Jamie Summers she does it bionically to this guy knocks him down and jumps using her bionics to stop the people from kidnapping the baby and she karate chops with her bionics the gun pulls the baby away takes the baby to the president the other children uh, arrive and they discard everything the colonel has said. They do not believe in that traitor's words and they are going to accept Jamie's teachings on democracy. And then Oscar shows up. You have some pretty awful TV action show dialogue from the 70s. I mean, it feels like it would easily fit into the uh, the action show kind of thing where, you know, on chips they tell the, the dumb joke and then they freeze frame on the the actors um she 
she tells the children, he lied expertly. Now, if you'll excuse me, I must report to my employer, Oscar Goldman. Next panel, he's right there next to her. He has just suddenly appeared in this country, knowing there was going to be a coup. And she, he says, there's no need, Jamie. I was here for the finale, and you did an excellent job. Someday you may become useful to the OSI. Gee, thanks, Oscar. You know how to make a girl feel terrific. Almost. And, okay, there is that kind of back and forth in the actual show. It never, ever feels like this. So the next uh, story is called Deep Danger. And Jamie Summers is trying to prove that she's worthy of the OSI by taking some diving lessons from a diving instructor who works for the OSI. We don't see the setup. We're just in the water, and there's already just her and a shark and a guy shooting the harpoon gun at her. It's directly from the cover. And and somehow she knows that uh, that it's got a, the poison dart. And she says, but uh, the poison dart can kill a man-eater, but <gasps> Damish, that's the name of the, the instructor, aim to kill me. Of course he misses. The shark is coming up on her, and... <laughs> She kills it with a bionic kick. And then she uh, takes care of Damish. She uh, is able to snap his wrist and she twists. Uh, he's left in the water. Uh, she goes up and uh, she finds out that Oscar has let her go into this training session knowing that the guy training her was going to be a traitor, but that she could handle it. Uh, so so they're testing her to see if she's worthy of being on the OSI, but they know that she can handle actual traitors. Why do they need to test her? I, I, I don't know. But he then tells her that they're, they're going to put her on another mission. Uh, there's a guy in a yacht who needs protecting. So she goes uh, undercover as a photographer, and she's going to live at the marina where the, the, the yacht is, is anchored. And she's going to recover as a photographer, so she's able to take surveillance photos. And she ends up going uh, swimming underwater with an underwater camera. And the bad guys who are trying to or are plotting to kill her, they uh, send someone down after her and they remove her oxygen. So she sinks down. But it, <laughs> it says, um, he's watching me drown. He'll use his knife if I don't like, believe that I'm dead. And then the caption says, thanks to Oscar Goldman and her good friend, Steve Austin, Jamie Summers was in fantastically good condition. She could remain underwater an incredibly long time without oxygen. So she stays without oxygen long enough for the guy to plant plastic explosives underneath the yacht. She goes up, gets it, throws it away bionically. And then uh, right after she does that, she gets wrapped up in a net and gets caught by the bad guys. The bad guys bring her on the yacht and she is put in into a closet uh, with the uh, the yacht owner who is the target of the assassination, and they're going to plant another bomb. Fortunately, there's a helicopter who's coming, and, and the helicopter comes and takes the dude off the boat, and it starts to lift away. She jumps, grabs the ladder, and then the boat blows up. And yay, she, she's won. So talking about these comic stories real quick, the art is actually not that great. Now, sometimes it's on 
model as far as Jamie giving the expression and as far as Oscar Goldman. Oscar Goldman looks great in every panel. He looks like the actor. It's really good. Uh, they they even though mess up which arm is bionic when she escorts that military fanatic out of her classroom using bionics to squeeze his arm, which happens right after she reveals in her thought clouds that Oscar told her not to use it, but she she's grabbing with her left hand, not her right. So maybe she's not using her bionics. Maybe she's still using uh, just her own fantastic tennis pro strength in her left arm, and but probably not. Uh, real quick, the text job is called a uh, text story is called a job for a woman, and uh, she's having a conversation with Oscar Goldman, and she says, "Why are you sending the six million dollar man on assignments but keeping me idle?" And Oscar Goldman's answer, basically, "You're a woman." I'm quoting directly. I am not paraphrasing. So then she goes on a date to a restaurant that she wanted to go to, and an evil man shows up. And what happens after the evil man shows up? Steve Austin shows up to confront the evil man. But the evil man pulls out a nuclear grenade. So she goes over to help because she can overhear with a bionic hearing. He takes her hostage and takes her outside. But when she goes outside with him, she grabs his hand with her bionic arm and squeezes until he hands her the nuclear grenade. The, the nuclear nuclear grenade. Yes, that that's what he has to a nuclear grenade. Oscar then comes after she's helped, and here's the dialogue. <clears throat> Jamie took the grenade just as Oscar rushed up, his gun drawn. Jamie, you had no right to interfere. You could have ruined everything. Steve Austin could handle him. Steve shook his head at Oscar. No, Oscar. Koss was frightened. He'd have used the grenade if I tried to take it away. Steve smiled at Jamie. It was a job only the bionic woman could perform, Oscar, Steve stated. Jamie raised her chin and gave the boss of QSI a cold stare. Excuse me, Mr. Goldman. I interrupted my dinner to deal with Klaus. Join us if you like, Steve. Yeah. So, basically, I hold in my hands a fantastic cover and uh, some writing inside that that actually reminds me of the characterization of Jamie Summers. And, and, And Lindsay Wagner brings a lot to that characterization in the show. And they, they emulate a lot of that in the dialogue, but it's the comic. It's misogynistic and racist. And I would not give this to my kids to enjoy Uh, the artwork of the characters who are from that Asian country. I mean, it looks like it was drawn in the 40s. This looks like, you know, yellow scare or whatever they call it type of artwork. I cannot believe that's what they went with. And I don't know a lot about, you know, racial art, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better term, in, in the late 70s. But this surprised me so much. Uh, I just... I, I can't believe they did it. Now they stopped short of some of the um, more, uh, I don't know. They, they stopped short of, of some of the, the worse art that I've seen, you know, some of those 1940s comics, but, whew, and then and the story at the end, you know, here's the thing. Uh, the TV show is not perfect. I mean, it's late seventies. It, it's going to have some, some, the issues you know the, 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 
the dealing, you know, with with male and female relationships, and and even some of the the racial things that they do with with characters who are there, you know, who are not white, and they're there pretty much for that one reason. The plot point is they're not white, so we're going to follow that plot. And what are they going to do? And and what are they going to teach us? Or what are they going to learn from us? But they show up specifically to be not white. Uh, but it's, it's a product of the time, and so is this comic book. This comic book is a product of the time I would not share with my kids, though. And I'm not going to hand this to my daughters, you know, and say, hey, you like the bionic woman? Here you go. No, I, I'm not going to do that. On the TV show, Jamie's character is not a bad role model. She is a professional woman. She deals with her emotions. She She's not afraid to cry. She's not afraid to jump into action. And I don't mind the the role model that they get from the TV show, at least so far. I, I, I don't mind it. But this was just, I mean, every story has something to do with her being a woman, not because, oh, she's a woman doing stuff, but because, oh, we don't know if we can trust you at this job. And, oh, well, you know, and even though the tables are kind of turned on Oscar Goldman for that, uh, it still just, it just falls flat. It's just clunky to me. And the between the art and that element, the characterization alone in some of the dialogue is not enough to make me want to find more of these comics and, and you know, collect the other four. I'm glad I had this one. I'm glad I read it, but I am not interested in, in finding any more. So that brings us to the second issue that we're going to be talking about in this episode, and that is the $6 million man number two. The comic story, there's only one comic story, not two, is called The Effigy. And the, the text story at the end is only two pages. We'll talk about that when we get to it. Uh, this one actually has some credits. The editor is George Wildman, who in my brief research about Charlton was uh, an editor who probably edited The Bionic Woman. He did a lot of editing for them. The script is by Nicola Cuti. And the art is Joe Staten. Both of those people are are uh, Charlton mainstays. Uh, with with uh, Joe Staten, he's been working consistently from this point in time until just a few years ago. He got his start at Charlton, and if this is him getting his start, man, uh, well, we'll get into it. First, the story. Uh, a scientist has made a tiny replica of Steve Austin based on photos that a spy has brought to him. The replica is only 12 inches tall, and the scientist did all of the technological stuff, while a toy maker did the likeness. And so it actually is a likeness of Steve Austin. Now, we find out that it has working bionics. It has a working atomic battery and as I, I like this, this is some fantastic dialogue. I, I, it's the kind of thing that I would have liked to have written. Uh, the scientist has earned his pay. And so the spy says to him, okay, doc, you've earned your pay. How do you want it? In paper, gold, silver, or blam, 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 lead. Okay, so the scientist is is dead meanwhile steve austin is driving oscar goldman's new car and he sees 
what the doll sees in front of his eyes and actually ends up crashing the car. Now, of course, he repairs the bumper that is all dented up by using his bionic strength. But I think I neglected to talk about the cover of this, and there's a reason for that. The cover has Steve Austin standing in what feels like a dark alley or, or something like that. There's a kind of rundown building behind him. In the background, he's, he's there, and he's holding his arm as if his bionic arm is actually in pain. And then you have this really mean-looking guy with a bionic man toy, and he's jabbing a pin into it. Yes. The idea here is that we're dealing with a voodoo doll of some sort. So the, kill, the killer is planning how he's going to get away, and the doll is actually going to bring him a million dollars from his government that he works for. As he's thinking about this, the police come. And so he runs off and he actually drops the toy off in a, a girl who's she's pushing a, a toy baby carriage. And he drops off in that as he runs away from the police. She takes it and throws it in the garbage. And a angry doll or angry dog comes and grabs the toy and starts chewing on it. And oh, my goodness, I'm looking at this. I'm having flashbacks, man. I'm having flashbacks. I'll, uh, my dog used to eat my toys. I I had a Sandman. It was Battle Damage Sandman before Battle Damage became an action figure thing. He That Sandman survived. Uh, Tuscan Raider, uh, as you kids might know it by. He was a survivor, if ever there was one. Meanwhile, I had a Fisher-Price little man who uh, was a pilot and he had a he wore a baseball cap and I liked him he he looked kind of like a he's kind of a sad guy you know just kind of a a guy who just he, he knows his place in life he wants something better in life but I always felt a little melancholy looking at him now when I think back on him I don't feel melancholy I feel just plain sad because <laughs> one day my dog got a hold of him and when my dog was done all that was left was his foot so, yes, seeing this panel here, or these panels, rather, I'm having flashbacks. Now, Steve Austin, he's not having flashbacks, but he is having the hallucinations again. He sees the dog, and then he starts flying around the room. He's getting whipped around like the doll. And so <laughs> he's got his head bandaged, and he's not, I mean, he's hurt. He's hurt. Well, the killer comes back to the girl, finds out where the doll ended up, and, and takes the doll. And and, uh, and then we cut to Steve. He's in the hospital, and he sees the murdered man on TV. So now they know who he was who was murdered, and now they have a good idea of um, who it actually was who did the killing. And so the killer, meanwhile, he goes to the local toy shop where the person who did the outer portion of the doll is. And uh, he opens it up, opens up the door, goes inside, sees all the toys. This place is weird, he thinks. And then he sees the owner of the place who did the sculpting. And she says, my name is Dolly, a nickname I assure you. May I help you? And she's wearing a maid's outfit. One of those maid's outfit that you might get at a costume shop that comes basically just below the, the cheeks of the bum. And <laughs> yeah. This place is weird, is right. So the question is, is it a voodoo doll? Or is there some sort of link through the atomic power packs between the doll and Steve? And 
I would submit to you, the listener, um, this is my opinion from me as a reader, voodoo is actually a little more plausible to me, but they're trying to go with maybe a, a scientific explanation. So the, the killer then, he decides he's going to sell the, he's going to have the, the girl make a fake doll that he's going to sell to Oscar Goldman for $6 million. You know, and then he's going to sell the real one to his own country, not for one million dollars like they originally were going to do, but for two million dollars. So they're able to figure out where this guy is going because he's you know he's a spy and he ships stuff. Uh, the, there's a toy factory that they use as a front for a spy network, and it's also a blot on the name of every legitimate toy manufacturer out there. So Steve Austin is going to infiltrate. And this is where we get into TV show mode. He jumps the fence, just like in the TV show. He takes his bionic arm, or his bionic hand, rather, and crushes a lock, just like the TV show. He goes inside. He gets he gets seen. He, he He's made. And so they attack him. He's got people shooting at him. They, they try and crush him with a forklift, which he flips over. Uh, a gang of the guys comes after him and they attack him with chains and he um there's so there's this fight where he he shows that he's got the bionic strength the guy takes a crowbar hits his leg and it bends and he looks at it like what in the world just happened i mean it is straight from the tv show now one thing they may not have done in the tv show because of budget is they tried to actually pour a huge vat of molten lead on him but of course, he jumps out of the way. Then he goes to confront the killer, the spy, and the killer, uh, the spy, he's pretty confident. He doesn't have to worry about anything because, you know what? He's holding the doll. He's got the doll. And he's loosened some of the bolts, so he's taken the time during the fight to loosen some of the bolts on the landing that they're standing on that leads to the office of the factory. And Steve actually falls through it a little bit, and he's hanging on with his... Well, bionic limb and his regular one. And the guy takes the arm of the toy and he holds it and says, you can't get up because I got, uh-oh. And Steve is actually climbing up. So he smashes the doll and realizes it's the fake. He goes inside to the office to get the real one that's standing there on his desk. And he just takes it and smashes it. But Steve is still coming. And a bionic punch later, Steve is one. Meanwhile, Dolly comes, and she's brought the real one to the factory. I don't know why. Uh, she has walked through the factory. She has gotten through the fence that he jumped over. She obviously came in the door that he uh, unlocked and, and busted the lock. But she's coming in here to give him the final exposition that we need for the the you know the wrap-up of this story. But she's walked past all the guys. She's holding the toy in her arm. And she comes and she reveals that the scientist was her father, actually. And she actually kept the real one, which is why she's walking in with it, and created two fake ones because she knew you know, that, that that's an evil man who's been dealing with that. So when he came asking for a duplicate, she kept the original, gave him two duplicates, and then she says... Uh, I've already disconnected the electronic parts, so the doll is harmless. You know, I like the real you better. I made the miniature from photos. 
And then Steve, he's put his arm around her and says, then you should get to know the real me tonight. <laughs> uh, the text story is really lame. Uh, it's called Win a Few, and I'm, I'm just going to briefly talk about it. But he goes to a, Steve Austin goes to a class reunion after wanting a break because he's been on a bunch of different missions. They were rough. And at the class reunion, he gets pushed into playing a game of football he doesn't want to play, but he only uses his power when his friend is going to fall onto some broken glass. So he runs over, helps his friend up. The assist is enough to get him across the, the, the line so that he can get a touchdown. The score is tied. He wants to stop the game there. And his friends are willing to because they noticed how fast he moved and said if he really wanted to win, he could wipe us out. So I'll settle for a tie. So he feels good. He doesn't have to play anymore. I'm not going to talk about that anymore. It's dumb. It's dumb. But the this story itself, the comic story, there's some dynamic art in here. And like I said, we're coming back to that art. If this is him getting his start, and probably it isn't. This is 1976. And so maybe he's been at it a couple of years. I, I don't know. I, I don't know when he actually started. But uh, yeah, he it, the the story is not a great read, at least not for the plot. But for the the pacing and the art, there's some really good use of panels and you know small thin panels that give us a sense of of speed uh, as Steve is racing against uh, the guy pulling his gun, for example. Uh, this. This stuff has some really good storytelling that comes out in the art. Now, I, I do want to briefly mention the ads, and it's important. Uh, the, the ads are pretty standard, although there are some racy dog tags ads in here. You can get dog tags, and um, one of them is, I'm his because he deserves the best. One of them is, love spreads germs. Quick, make me sick. <laughs> There's a couple that are a little more racy than that. There's some t-shirts that are kind of cool that are really influenced by uh, uh, R. Crumb. One of them says, do one to others, then split. <laughs> so, And there's the toy soldiers and the daisy rifle and that kind of thing. But when you get to the end of the story proper, the comic story, it says end, but it ends only two-thirds down the page. The final third has Six Million Dollar Man, Steve Austin standing next to a table holding the toy and so then you should get to know the real me tonight and um by the way they frame that picture of them walking away through the window of the door to the office that says private i mean can you get more suggestive yes but it's still suggestive uh anyway the next panel it feels like you're still in the story, even though you saw a caption that said end. And there's Steve Austin saying, hey, guys, thanks to Kenner, you can have your own nifty $6 million man with a bionic power arm. Also available at your local toy or department store is the repair station and the backpack radio. So the whole time I'm reading this story, until I get to the point where they break the fourth wall, I'm looking at that, that toy, that voodoo doll. Uh, even on the cover, when I just saw the cover in the in the store, I saw that voodoo doll, and I was reminded of the the toy. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is really funny because it's like that toy. It's like that toy. It's like that toy. It's meant to be. I think this whole story was written like this to get to the point where he could say, "Hey, get your own, get your own." It's crazy. It's kind of funny. I don't know because it's weird because the dolls in the story are you know. 
tools for evil. They're weapons. It's not intended to be played with or appreciated in a fun and cute way. No, it's a voodoo doll that's being taken out of the country by a spy who has just killed a man. But, yeah, get your own. <laughs> so the final verdict on this, you know, with Bionic Woman, I am not going to look for any more. If someone were to give me a Bionic Woman comic book, push it into my hands, sure, I might sit down to read it because it's in my hands and I have it. But I, I have no interest in reading anymore. Six Million Dollar Man, I have no interest in seeking out to buy anymore. But if I went back to Tom's Vintage Toys and he had another one and it was reasonably priced which these were reasonably priced i would absolutely buy one if it comes if it comes in front of me i'll be interested if i have to seek it out i'm not that interested but this definitely uh, you know it it definitely fed the interest that i have right now uh, the just that geeky part of me that kitty part of me I mean, reading this and seeing the dog grab the toy and and just seeing the toy, I have feelings of nostalgia. I never once have read a $6 million man comic book, but I still got feelings of nostalgia reading this one. Now, there are some modern $6 million man comic books. I'm not interested in them. I just don't know. I'm not interested in them either. Uh, I'm interested in watching the show with my kids and, and having fun. But So these two comics, they were fun. But they weren't the kind of thing. They weren't enough fun for me to go out on eBay and try and find some six million dollar man comic book lots, or to go to mycomicshop.com and and do the same thing. Overall, though, I I enjoyed the read. I enjoyed the experience, and they were they were fun enough. But man, Bionic Woman, I was just that cover man. When she actually kicks the shark, it's really not that cool. I say she kicks the shark. That gives me a great image in my head. I read her kicking the shark. Not so much. So that's all for now. Then you can uh, find us on Facebook at well, uh, f- facebook.com slash comicbooktimemachine. Our website is comicbooktimemachine.com. You can find my website at benavery.com. You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyteller, all one word. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. Do you have any memories like this from The Six Million Dollar Man? I would love to hear them. Have you read The the Modern Six Million Dollar Man? And do you think that I'm missing out? Maybe I should uh, revise my interest level. Let me know. Do you remember reading these comics from Charlton? Uh, Let me know. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at feedback at at comicbooktimemachine. So I just once again want to thank you for listening and just wish you all Godspeed.